I saw the most incredible video this week. It featured a man carrying a, a wheelbarrow in, in one hand, kind of sideways like so, and a cinder block over his shoulder in the other hand. And he was walking along, begging for someone to help him. And once you know it, a man, a kind gentleman, stops and he, he takes the wheelbarrow from the man's side and sets it on the ground, takes the cinder block, sets it inside of the wheelbarrow as if to say, voila, now you know the purpose of the wheelbarrow. And then the man who was in need of the help proceeds to pick up the wheelbarrow as if it were a bucket constructed to carry the cinder block and continue walking on his way. The man who tried to help him just looked aghast. The man had misunderstood the purpose of a wheelbarrow and used it in a way that I guess was functional but inappropriate. This is something I think happens all the time. And sometimes it's not that big of a deal. Sometimes it is, right? You carry a wheelbarrow. You might work harder, but it's not going to do any damage to anyone. You, you take a Q-tip and insert it into your ear canal, which it tells you not to do on the box, misusing it, but you get along. It's not, not that dangerous. Or maybe you put things in your glove box that are not your gloves. When was the last time you actually put gloves in your glove box? All the time, we use things how we want rather than how they were purposed. It's not, not a big deal, but sometimes it can be. For example, just try after service today, on your way home, stopping at the gas station, and filling your gas-powered vehicle up with diesel. It'll be quite costly. Something similar happens in John chapter 4, verses 43 through 54. See, people have begun to misunderstand and misuse the miracles of Jesus. They actually invert the purpose of his phenomenal actions. Viewing the miracles of Jesus as ends in and of themselves. So that, that Jesus becomes the means by which these people can, can see the great miracles. They believe in the miracles, but not the man. The purpose of the miracles all along is to reveal the glory of God. To reveal Jesus as the God-man. The miracles are designed to serve the message of Christ. These signs illuminate the Savior. And yet, over and over again, we find that those closest to Jesus misunderstand them and misuse them. And so uh, the main idea, I think, of this section, one I want you to consider as uh, we work through the text this morning, is this. Hearing and believing the word of Jesus is greater than seeing the miracles of Jesus. 
I want to exhort you to desire Jesus more than miracles. I'm going to kind of work through it in two parts. We're going to look at uh, broadly chapters 2 and 4 and then some of the verses in our pericope and then we'll, we'll look at how this royal official um, who receives the sign of Jesus believes in Jesus' word. Let's pray and we'll begin our time together this morning. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather here before you. What a privilege. Pray that, that we would look forward to this time where we can encourage one another, sing your praises, learn from your word, and connect with you more intimately. Pray that we wouldn't take it for granted, but that this would be, this would be fun. You are not a, a God who expects us to just not enjoy worship. You've designed us to give you glory and to enjoy you. Pray that, that we would do this this morning as we listen to your word proclaimed. We thank you for all the, the many temporal blessings that you've given to us in this world. The refreshing air the light of the sun, food that renews our strength, clothing, homes, sleep that gives us rest, the starry canopy of night, the summer breeze, the cool feel of an autumn wind, the sweetness of flowers, the music of flowing streams, the happy endearments of family, kindred, and friends, things animate, things inanimate. They all minister to our comfort. You have given us so many good things. Our cups runneth over. And Lord, we pray that we would enjoy all these things and more rightly. That we wouldn't misuse them and think of them as ends in and of themselves, but that we would allow them to lead our hearts into praise and worship of you, the good gift giver. Pray that you would be the deepest longing of our souls. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So what we're going to do is we're going to read our text, then we're going to step back, put it in context, and proceed forward. Starting verse 43, John chapter 4. After two days, he left there for Galilee for... That word's important there. We'll come back to it later. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country, hometown, fatherland, quite literally. So, another important word we'll come back to later. When they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival. For they had also gone to the festival. He went again to Cana of Galilee where he had turned water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea in Galilee, he went to him and pleaded with him to come down and heal his son, since his son was about to die. Jesus told him, Unless you people, you, y'all, see signs and wonders, you will not believe. 
Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. Go, your son will live, Jesus said. The man believed the word of Jesus and departed. While he was still going down, his servants met him saying that the boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yeah, yesterday at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. The father realized that this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. So he himself believed along with his whole household. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. John has constructed for us a frame inside of which he has placed a bunch of events. And the frame that he's drawn for us is made of these signs. So back in chapter 2, in those first 11 verses, we had the sign of Jesus turning water into wine, the first sign. And now here, right at the back end of chapter 2, we have this healing of the official's son. John calls it the second sign. Now, what's important to recognize right here at the jump is in between these two signs, Jesus does other miracles. And you go, well, that's, that's a little odd. I thought sign one, sign two. And so just to clear up that confusion before we go any further, this is, these two signs correspond to miracles that are done in Jesus' homeland, in Cana of Galilee. Now, this frame, or inclusio, an inclusion, is important. It's a, a literary strategy that John is employing to signal us to his idea, to, to what he wants us to take hold of and, and to learn. We saw inclusios before when we worked through the book of Mark, and we talked about them this way. We said they're kind of like sandwiches, like literary sandwiches, right? And if you've had a sandwich, you know there's a, a bread part, and then there's something in the middle there, hopefully meat, and then there's another bread part, the, the two ends, and then the middle. And typically, the middle defines the whole sandwich, right? So if you have a turkey, piece of turkey in the middle, right? turkey sandwich, ham in the middle, ham sandwich, ham and cheese in the middle, ham and cheese sandwich. If you're a vegetarian, maybe cucumber, right? Not my thing, but that's for you. Cucumber sandwich. It works similarly here. Mark, or Mark, John wants us to understand his content by evaluating both what's on the ends, but also what is in the middle. And they inform one another. Inclusio just is where the author introduces a characteristic or an idea or a theme, and a thought, and then revisit it, revisits it again later to mark off a complete section. And so the, the, the two things that signal us, like bright lights, that this is what John is doing, is at the first sign, right? He calls it the first sign. And then here, he says this is the second sign. We'll also notice both signs are performed in Cana of Galilee. And the result of both signs is that only a few people believe. Jesus reveals his glory. What's interesting is that 
the people closest to Jesus, those who, who should get it and understand who he is, don't. The, the insiders misunderstand his miracles. We can see this as we work through these two chapters. Right after he does the miracle of it at Cana, Jesus goes to the Passover festival. And we studied Leviticus. And so we know that this is one of the three pilgrimage festivals. And that means that Jerusalem is full. And do you know who would be in Jerusalem? Well, some people from Cana. It's going to be important later. Some people from Cana. At any rate, Jesus recognizes that the temple has been turned into a, a supermarket of sorts. And he flips over some tables and uh, chases out the greedy proprietors. The Jews, obviously, are, are not uh, excited about that. And so they say to him, verse 18 of chapter 2, What sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answers, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it up in three days. And they completely misunderstand him. And they say, this temple took 46 years to build and you will raise it in three days? Like, well, we don't, they don't get it. Even his disciples miss it. Right, verse 22. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. So, so they hear him say this, but they don't have any concept of a crucified and raised Messiah yet. They don't, they don't have that category. And so the faith that they have in Christ at, at this point and throughout the Gospels until we get to the other side of the resurrection is, is saving faith. It's faith in Jesus as Messiah, but it's a faith that's qualitatively different than our own. They don't have all the information yet, but they're believing in the word of Christ. But at this point, Jesus makes this statement. It's clear that the Jews misunderstand him. The disciples don't have the whole picture. And we read this in, in verse 23 of chapter 2. While Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Oh, that's great. That's great. John continues. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them because he knew them all because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. You see, belief in John's gospel, there, there's, there's belief with, with air quotes around it, a spurious belief, a bogus faith, and then there's belief. Jesus will not entrust himself to those at the festival in Jerusalem because he knows what's within their hearts. He knows that theirs is a faith in miracles. Not himself. And so he does not entrust himself to them. Good news is that when you sincerely come to Christ in faith, he gives himself to you completely. But he cannot be tricked or hoodwinked. He demands real faith. And so we see the, the Jews misunderstanding who Jesus is and rallying around these signs and wonders. 
Jesus is misunderstood. This continues with Nicodemus in chapter 3. They have this notorious conversation wherein Jesus says, Truly, I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus doesn't understand it, which is evidenced for us in the fact that he tries to puzzle together how a man could enter again into his mother's womb and then be born again. He's like, this, this doesn't compute, Jesus. And Jesus is like, you, you're supposed to be the teacher of Israel and you don't understand it? How will you understand heavenly things? Nicodemus is a Pharisee, leading teacher in Israel, and he, he doesn't understand who Jesus is. He doesn't put together all the signs that point to Christ as the Messiah. Then Jesus and his disciples go into the Judean countryside, and they're baptizing there, and we, we see the disciples of John the Baptist. And they're talking to one another about uh, purification rites. And then they get to talking, and they go, hey, all these people are leaving our band of disciples, and they're joining Jesus' band of disciples. And they go to John, and they're like, this is a problem. Like, we're shrinking. Everybody's going to Jesus. They don't understand who, who Jesus is. And John lovingly tries to correct them. He says, look, I'm not trying to, to build my own brand here. My job is to point to the bridegroom. He must become greater. I must become less. Then this chapter brings out the theme before us. It says, the one who believes, that's sincere belief, verse 36 of chapter 3, in the Son has eternal life. But the one who rejects the Son, even by expressing a spurious belief, a bogus faith, will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. And so we have those closest to Jesus, those Jews and Pharisees, even the disciples of John the Baptist, not understanding who he is. And it's at this juncture that we're introduced to an outsider, to a Samaritan woman, who Jesus engages in conversation at a well. Now most of you, many of you, know that for a Jew to talk to a Samaritan was a, a social no-no. Jews and Samaritans didn't like each other. Jews viewed Samaritans as half-breeds. And yet Jesus speaks to this woman. He asks her for a cup of water and she is just put off by the fact that he's even talking to her. She can't believe it. Jesus just loves to surprise sometimes. They end up having this wonderful conversation wherein Jesus casually brings up the fact that she has had many husbands and lovers and she's currently enjoying the company of a live-in boyfriend. And she responds to that by saying, I see that you are a prophet. Jesus tells her that he's the Messiah. And she believes. She believes that Jesus is the Messiah. And she goes into her town where she's from, and she tells everybody, come and see Jesus. And we read in verse 39, chapter 4, 
Now many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's word. When she testified, he told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them. And he stayed two days. Many more believed because of his word. And they told the woman, We no longer believe because of what you said, because we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. The Samaritan woman gets a sign of sorts. Jesus prophesies to her. And, but it's not like a, a big, explosive miracle. And she believes. And then she goes into town and she tells all the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. And they come out and they hear Jesus speak. They hear his word. And they believe. No signs. Just the word of Jesus. And they say, we have heard for ourselves and know that this really is the Savior of the world. You see what John is doing here? Is he's, he's contrasting and, and setting up this, this contrast that he's been working on since chapter 1, verse 11. Jesus came to his own and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Those closest to Jesus should see who he is. They should see the, the signs, recognize the glory of God revealed in him, and express genuine faith. But that's not what happens. Instead, we have outsiders, these half-breed Samaritans, recognizing Jesus for who he is and believing in him. Jesus is entrusting himself to them. They're becoming children of God. While the children of Abraham, miss it. That brings us to verse 43. Samaritans have believed in Jesus. Things are going really well. And we read, After two days, he left there, that's Sakar in Samaria, for Galilee, well, why did he leave? Verse 44 tells us. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country or his fatherland. So he's, he's leaving there where he's very popular to go to his hometown where he says he's not going to be well received. He's going to be dishonored there. Doesn't make a whole lot of sense. And then verse 45 it says, Therefore, when they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival, for they also had gone down to the festival. Now, this is a little bit of a, a not logically, a little confusing. 
Right? To the extent that, that some of our translations, like CSB, NIV, actually, they smooth this out for us a little bit because it seems like John's contradicting himself. And, and so they, they get rid of the, the for in verse 44 and the therefore in verse 45. They just don't translate it. Or they, like, they translate what should be therefore as when in verse 45. But here, those two words, I mean, that's, those are legitimate translations in, in some sense, but, but they, they miss the importance of what's actually in the text. And these, these two words, for and therefore, are really, really important. Because what we have here is Jesus saying, I'm really popular over here in Samaria, and I know that I'm going to be dishonored in Galilee. And so, I'm going to go where I'm going to be dishonored, where I'm going to be rejected by my own people. Jesus is more concerned with obedience to the Father's will than he is for his own comfort. Are you? Do you engage in uncomfortable conversations about who Jesus is with unbelieving friends and family and and people, even though you know they might be hostile to your message? Or do you instead opt to avoid those conversations and entertain your own comfort? The way of Christ is the way of love, and, and love compels us to be obedient to God and to put faithfulness to His Word ahead of our own comfort. But then we have another turn in the text in verse 45. He says, A prophet is without honor in his own home country. Therefore, when they entered Galilee, this is his, his home region, right? It's like from Nazareth and Galilee is kind of like the county. They entered Galilee and the Galileans welcomed him. Did John just make a huge mistake? Is he just contradicting himself? I mean, that's what some people say when they come to a text like this. They're, you know, John, he's just one of those first century people, and so he can't help but trip over his own feet and contradict himself, like, in one verse to the next. That's simple chronological snobbery. John is a, a brilliant man. He's not dumb. And so what's going on here is he's alluding back to what we already saw in chapter 2 which he makes explicit, right? They welcomed him. Why did they welcome him? Because they had seen everything he did in Jerusalem during the festival. For they had gone to the festival. They went from Galilee, or yeah, from Galilee down to the festival in Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And now they've come back. And here Jesus is coming back in Cain of Galilee where he says he's going to be rejected. And there they are. And they're welcoming him. John intends for us to read this with kind of a 
sarcastic irony. Their welcome of Jesus is tantamount to the faith they had in Jesus. It's spurious. It's bogus. It's not genuine. They're not welcoming Jesus as Messiah King. They're welcoming Jesus as magician and miracle worker. Who doesn't want to see a good miracle? And so we do better to read this. Therefore, when they entered Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. They welcomed him. Why? Because they saw everything he did in Jerusalem at the festival. Theirs is a focus on the signs that misses the Savior. They look at the miracles, but they misunderstand the man. And what happens here is John now gives us a dramatic portrayal of this truth in concert with the second sign, the healing of an official's son. Look at verse 46. He went again to Cana of Galilee, where he had turned the water into wine. There was a certain royal official whose son was ill at Capernaum. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea into Galilee, he went, pleaded with Jesus to come down and to heal his son since he was about to die. Jesus told him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. Here we have a royal official, a man who would have had other avenues to treating his son's ailment. It seems as if all those avenues, all those courses had been taken and had failed. And so here he comes to Jesus, the miracle worker, hoping that he might heal his son. This father is a sympathetic character. I mean, we can relate. If you've ever had a sick child, rocked a fevered baby in the middle of the night. You can sympathize with this man. His boy is about to die. His son is on death's doorstep. And so he comes to Jesus pleading Please, come down and, and heal my son. Come and heal my boy. Don't let him die! And what, what do we expect of Jesus? We, we expect Jesus, of course. He's, he's Jesus, meek and mild. But we expect Jesus to immediately say, Yes, sir, I'm coming with you. Let's go the, the 20 or so miles to your house. We expect him to go with him, get to his house, uh, you know, say, put his hands on the boy, uh, just like he does with the little girls. Kum Lake, arise, get up, healed. 
But that's not what Jesus does, is it? Jesus is surprising. He's not tender here. Not immediately. Rather, he is tenacious. He addresses not just the man who has come to him and asked for this healing, this sign. He addresses everybody that's around him. Unless all y'all see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He uses this as an opportunity to call out their spurious faith, their bogus belief. He's saying, you should believe my word. You see the contrast? You should be able to believe my word without constantly seeking signs. And this comes as sort of a, a test, the first of two tests that are tied together to this man. And, and this first one is similar uh, to that of the, it reminds me of the Syrophoenician woman. If you remember, uh, she comes to Jesus and she says, hey, will you cast this demon out of my daughter? And Jesus says to her, it's not right to take the children's bread and to feed it to the dogs. I mean, basically it's like, sorry, dog, I can't do it for you. Remember how she responds to Jesus? She says, even the puppies get fed underneath of the table. Jesus says, Woo, that's some faith! And her daughter is made well. So similar test here. Heal, heal my son. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will not believe. How is he going to respond? Here, here is his initial response. Sir, the official said to him, come down before my boy dies. He reiterates the initial plea. And Jesus reiterates his test. He, he, he pushes him to a decision. Watch, watch. Go, your son will live. You see what Jesus has done? The man asks him, come down to my house so that my boy will live. Come and do this sign for me in my home. And Jesus says, you people need to believe my word rather than putting your faith in my signs and wonders. And so, so, so Jesus is saying to him, no, I am not coming with you. Not giving you anything to assure you of your child's well-being. But my word. Will you believe? Go, your son will live. Man has a decision to make. He can believe the word of Jesus and go. Or, I mean, he could double down and just repeat his, his cry for help again. He could maybe try to pull rank, right? 
Listen, I am a royal official. You son of a carpenter, you Nazareth scum. If you don't come down with me, we're, we're going to go get some of the royal guard and we're going to make you come down. He has a choice. Will he believe the word of Jesus or will he insist on a miracle? Insist on the conjurer coming to his house. The man came for a sign for the miracle worker. He can't just leave empty-handed believing Jesus' word, can he? Go, your son will live. The man believed what Jesus said. Believed, literally that says, believed the word Jesus had spoken to him and departed. So you can see John is bringing up throughout his whole gospel, we saw the Samaritans, uh, they believed the word of the woman, then they believed the word of Jesus. And here, the man is believing the word of Jesus. And John sets this, this kind of theme up at the beginning in John chapter 1. In the beginning was what? The word. He wants us to believe the word of Jesus. While he was still going down to his servants, they They met him on the road, saying that his boy was alive. He asked them at what time he got better. Yesterday, at one in the afternoon, the fever left him, they answered. Father realized this was the very hour at which Jesus had told him, your son will live. Jesus nailed it! He got it just right! The seventh hour, at one in the afternoon, he said his son would be better, and he was. It's just incredible. Jesus pushes this man to believe in his word rather than putting his faith in his wonders. And then in his kindness, he goes ahead and performs the miracle anyway. So he himself believed along with his whole household. This man becomes a genuine believer and immediately shares it with his household, becomes an evangelist. What a great pattern for us to follow. Now this was also the second sign Jesus performed after he came from Judea to Galilee. Jesus, in this interaction, demands that the royal official trust in him rather than in his miracles. He he brings him to a decision point. And and we can kind of see in the man's heart this change. He came as kind of a representative of all those who had come down from Galilee and seen what Jesus did at the Passover festival, faith in the miracles. And we see him move from, from that kind of belief, that spurious belief, into genuine faith in Christ. It's like, kind of like a, if you've ever, um, if you're a kind person and you're trying to wake someone else up in the morning and you go into their room and you have one of those, those dimmer switches, and you turn it on just real, real slow. Honey, wake up. Honey, wake up. And then very, very slowly, light fills up the room. And then they, they wake up. Versus somebody who's a little bit meaner, right? You go in, you flip on the light switch, you tear open the curtains. Rise and shine. That's what my wife does. 
I think a lot of conversions are more like the dimmer switch than the light switch. I think you get both. But I think what we have here is kind of this dimmer switch. This man trusts in the miracles, but he he misunderstands the man. He, He doesn't grasp just who Jesus is as Messiah. And so Jesus pushes him and pushes him into these decisions and, and the light slowly but surely it comes, it comes on. He, he believes. This is genuine belief. He believes even though at this point Jesus' own family thinks he's crazy and his own brothers don't believe in him. Right, Mark 3, 21. And when his family heard it, this is about Jesus, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he's out of his mind. And later in John, in in 7, 5, what we'll read, for not even his, that's Jesus, not even Jesus' brothers believed in him. You see what John is communicating he's writing to a jewish audience he's saying don't miss it the miracles were great but don't miss jesus the samaritans got it surely you can see it believe we can't help but notice those closest to jesus those who are most familiar with him do not truly follow him. Those insiders misunderstand the miracles of Jesus. There is a caution for us there, brothers and sisters, is there not? You can be around Jesus, you can be around church, you can be around the preaching of the Word. You can be familiar with the Gospels. You can be familiar with hymns. You can be familiar with it all, but be outside of the family of God. We, we do well to evaluate. Or do, I, do I desire Jesus? Or do I desire whatever it is I think following Jesus will get me? Do I I come to Jesus as my king? Do I believe his word? Or do I come to Jesus as kind of a conjurer of tricks? Many evangelicals do. They believe. Air quote, belief. We, like the royal official, have a decision to make about Jesus. Will we simply be familiar with him or will we really follow him? Do we come to him as the conjurer of tricks or as our king? Do we desire Jesus Or do we desire miracles? Do we desire things to go the way that we want?
it doesn't require faith to want miracles. It doesn't require faith to want your little boy to get well. It doesn't require faith to want your friend who is battling cancer to get better. It doesn't require faith. Is Jesus your king or a means to an end? It is wonderful here that Christ in his graciousness he heals the boy. And such is his power. Like one of the one of the things here I love, the royal official thinks Jesus has to be in the room to do the healing. And Jesus is like, no. I don't. I can do it with my word. I mean, such is the power of our king, brothers and sisters. That, that from 15, 20 miles away, he can speak a word and it's done. I mean, he could have been 15,000 miles away and it wouldn't have mattered. When Jesus speaks with authority, there, there are no limitations to his power. I mean, this is our God. He created with His Word. This is our God. He hung the stars in the sky with His Word. This is our God. He paints landscapes. This is our God. Not a wave crashes upon the shore of the beach apart from His will. This is our God. Not a sparrow falls to the ground apart from His will. This is our God. He knows the number of hairs on your head. This is our God. He heals with the Word from 25 miles away. This is our God. God. He will raise the dead with the word. This is our God. Such is his power and his might. He can heal. He can do it. He is sovereign. And yet he doesn't always. And we scratch our heads and we go, why? Here's the good news. Our faith isn't contingent upon miracles, upon always getting what we want. We've believed in a person. We believe in Jesus and his power and his promises. We believe in his word. And he's given us a wonderful promise. We repeat it all the time because it is that good in Romans 8.28 that he works all things together for the good of those who love him, for those who are called according to his purpose. And what that promise means is that whatever happens to us and in our lives happens for us. And so even when we have all those questions of why, we can answer them with who. We don't need the sign because we have the Savior. 
we believed his word. That ultimately it's whatever happens to us happens for us. It's for our good and for his glory. And as Christians, we know that Jesus had this power to heal. Has it? And he laid his life down. He didn't make use of his power to preserve his own life, but instead went to the cross where he suffered and died for your sin and for mine. And he did it so that he might save us ultimately from death and from the wrath of God. And so we might not get a a short-term healing. But friends, Jesus has a long-term plan. Don't look for an immediate miracle and hang all your hopes on it. Put all of your hopes in Christ alone. Jesus has a long-term plan. He said that he will raise us from the dead. Such is the power of our King. Oh, friends, hearing and believing the word of God is so much greater than seeing any and every miracle we might want to see. And so we ought to desire Jesus more than miracles. We ought not to misunderstand the power of God as if it's always there to serve our every whim and want. But instead, we ought to trust the wisdom of God as he exercises his power. I guess in some sense, in a lot of sense, the recreation of all things and the resurrection of the dead is the, the greatest of miracles, is it not? He will do this and more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this word from John. He's written these things so that we might believe and have eternal life. We thank you that John has also written in chapter 20, verse 29, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. He wrote these words with us in mind. That indeed we, we wouldn't physically see the resurrected Christ. And yet, we have the privilege of hearing his word and believing it that we might be saved. Believing it, knowing that indeed one day we will see that word fulfilled when he returns to make all things new and to raise the dead. We thank you for your love for us. Pray that you would give us strength to understand the depth and height of your love. Enlarge our capacities. so that we might know you more. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.